The sun rose on an LED oceanscape in the faux crescent window of Project Administrator Danielle Devenu's room. The image, backlit as it was, seemed brighter than usual. The authentic, recorded sounds of waves a little louder. Danielle lay in the bed, face down, the soft sheet draped around her. The man beside her roused, then leaned out of the bed. Tell me I don't have to get up, Danielle uttered quietly. The man kissed Devenu's forehead. You don't have to go anywhere. Danielle propped herself on one elbow. She watched her lover pull on his shorts and collect his uniform. Something slid out of his pocket. What's that? Devenu asked. The man tried in vain to pretend the worn, much-used journal hadn't appeared. It's nothing. He leaned in, kissing Danielle again. She sensed his deception, but ignored it, opting instead to stand and stride to the shower stall built into the wall. While Danielle bathed, Gabriel Princip opened Dr. John Bass' brown notebook. He flipped through the pages, imagining he was careening through the linguistic professor's life. He admired how Bath changed his handwriting with ease, moving from artful print to wiry scribbles to unique, outmoded cursive. Princip's eyes widened, astonished how Bath wrote with both right and left hands, perhaps simultaneously. Gabriel wondered if Bath did this to confuse a potential reader, or perhaps to conceal something from himself. Or was it something deeper? Was Dr. Bath both genius and a madman? His warring, contradictory personalities revealing themselves in cryptograms, logic problems, and ambiguous diary entries. Gabriel turned to a particular page. He gazed down at carefully scrawled letters. Two rows of writing to a line. I am my father, John Bath had written, but I am not like my father. And then, further down the page. I was told my father was prosecuted and sent away for giving supplies to those in the squalor. There is no record of this, and it makes no sense why this act of charity would be condemned unanimously by the Shadow Council so as to draw punishment by exile, or worse. Princip couldn't help but nod to himself, agreeing with the professor. From the shower stall, Danielle Devenu called out. Tell me again about the newscast. Gabriel looked up, then back down at Bath's journal. Uh, it, it, it wasn't a newscast. It was, uh, well, there used to be these things called talk shows. Tell me about that. Danielle's slender arm reached outside the shower. She took a towel. A few days earlier, in his role in the Phoenix Law Division Diagnostics and Programming section, Gabriel came across archival footage of Danielle's father, Jacques Devenu, appearing on a Parisian talk show. Jacques, a dentist by trade, was a media sensation known for a variety of conspiracy theories stemming from unusual discoveries found in his practice. It was your father. Gabriel told Danielle. He was much younger, and, well, he was talking about, you know, as a dentist he had all of these strange patients who had these things buried in their teeth. Danielle stepped into the small room, a towel wrapped around her body. She stood at the foot of the bed. What strange things, she asked, 
as if the term strange was terribly relative. Gabriel gazed at Danielle, trying not to smile, to hold back his intense admiration for her. Do you love me? she asked. Gabriel nodded. You hesitated. Danielle forced a frown. She turned to the mirror, squeezed water from her platinum blonde hair. I'm sorry, Gabriel replied. He leaned down to the rest of his uniform on the floor. I... We promised each other, Danielle said, running a comb through her hair. In here, no secrets. Of course. Gabriel found what he was looking for in his uniform pocket. A slender piece of plastic with a circular disc on one end. He placed the key under a page in Dr. Bath's journal. Well, Gabriel continued, steering Danielle's attention back to his story. Your father was telling the host and the audience about finding microfiche in his patient's teeth and these small capsules of unidentifiable chemicals. Apparently, he was compensated handsomely for this. Danielle gazed absently into the mirror. She thought about the photograph of her father she hid behind the frame. Jaquise never told me anything about that. Well, Gabriel took a crayon from the table. He rubbed it over the filled page in John Bath's journal, making an impression of the unusual, rectangular key underneath. After Jaquise had a handful of these customers, he turned to Danielle, your father started writing about it. Blogs, online articles. He communicated with anyone who would listen. They mocked him, Danielle said, matter-of-factly. Gabriel looked up. Yes. They asked him on that show to make a fool out of him, Danielle said. I suppose, Gabriel admitted. But it was a different time. The world was... falling apart. There were people eager to believe anything. Every political or scientific conspiracy they came across. Others rejected what they were afraid might be true. Danielle nodded. She leaned forward, bracing herself on the small credenza. I think it wasn't long after that that he... He moved to Iceland. Then the United States. Of course, Gabriel finished making the impression on the paper before him. He glanced over at Danielle. He was fortunate to be at the United Nations when... Gabriel stopped for a moment, saw Danielle's pained expression. Hey, you can't blame yourself for what happened to your father. Devenu turned swiftly. Can't I? I'm the one who... She shuddered, her torso rising and falling. She held her hand to her lips. I disabused everything he stood for. Gabriel shook his head. Jaquise may have had some accurate notions, but he was quite mad. Danielle shifted forcefully, her finger pointed. Don't call him that. Let them brand him as a crazy, as a fool, but not you. Never you. Gabriel watched tears well in his lover's eyes, but knew better than to go to her, to try to console her, change her mind. If he did, she would reject him, blame herself, and he would want to hold her, long to protect her, whether they were together or alone. I'm sorry, Gabriel finally said. Danielle composed herself and nodded. I want to see it. The video. I'll see what I can do, Gabriel agreed. He would do anything for her. 
Danielle dressed, sliding into the form-fitting outfit that distinguished her among her counterparts in the Phoenix Project. Gabriel looked down, finished sketching over Dr. Bass' writing. He wrote the words, There is no hatch, in thick, block letters. Satisfied, Princip pulled his own uniform on. He tucked Bath's journal back into the pocket. I do love you, Gabriel walked over to Danielle. He reached to her, stopping short of touching slim fingers dangling at her side. But this, he waved around the room. All of this, the secrets, the job. We have to be careful. In that moment, Danielle Devenu's chin turned up. Brilliant blue eyes scanned Gabriel Princip, seeking. Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 16, Overture. Lieutenant Baker and Corporal Reed stood outside Major Leonard McGillicuddy's quarters in the Phoenix Law Division barracks. Three metal door panels slid into the wall. Cuddy stood in the doorway, a stern look on his face. Come in, Cuddy instructed, stepping aside, but barely so they could enter. Once they were inside, the corporal stood at attention, his back to the portal. The lieutenant started to speak. Listen, Major... I know what this is about, but... Cuddy held up a flat palm. You don't have to say a damn word. For a moment, it seemed the Major was going to turn his back to them, but he didn't. I don't know what you were thinking, rousting those people in the lower decks. You've disgraced this division, you've embarrassed Colonel Marsh, and you've pissed me off. The corporal remained at attention, eyes fixed on a row of rivets in the wall. Lieutenant Baker stepped up to Cuddy. With all due respect, sir, you haven't been here much lately, and when you have, you haven't been much help. I'm on assignment, Cuddy retorted quickly, then wondered why he was justifying himself to his subordinate. You say, the lieutenant interjected, but while you're doing whatever, it falls to us to keep the population in line. And that means tasing poor people? Cuddy hovered over the lieutenant, their faces a few inches apart, punching a pregnant woman? The lieutenant sighed, unimpressed. (sighs) Give me a break, Major. You're the one who trained us. I started patrols with you. Where is this coming from? Is it because of that woman from the cafeteria? The dissidents? We're supposed to crush the dissidents. Cuddy cringed when the lieutenant said the word crush. He searched his mind. Were these his own words being thrown back at him? And worse, did he believe them? We're supposed to protect people, Cuddy shot back, 
Thrashing those in the squalor only emboldens the dissidents, helps them recruit, gives weight to their cause. But you're not really worried about that, the lieutenant said, his tone suggesting it could be either a statement or a question. What's that supposed to mean? Cuddy leaned back without retreating. When Marsh is gone, the lieutenant said, you're going to be in charge. But in the meantime, you're ignoring the fact that resources are scarce. The founding generation is dying out. The project requires more maintenance, and there's less production. Cuddy peered at his subordinate. Go on. The lieutenant continued. Somebody's got to take out the trash. Cuddy's eyes bore into the other man, waiting for him to finish. When he didn't, the major leaned in a broad forearm placed under Baker's chin, pushing him against the wall. Major! Corporal Reed's stiff posture drooped. He turned to the other man, probably weighing his loyalty to leadership with his need for a job. You pull a stunt like this again, I will end you, Cuddy growled. He saw the lieutenant gnash his teeth, fighting for air. There was just enough arrogance and fight in the other man. The major thought of what John Bath said about him, criticizing Cuddy and all of Phoenix law enforcement as fascists bent on domination rather than deterrence, strength over supervision. Was Bath right? Cuddy eased off the lieutenant. Baker clutched his throat. <clears throat> you won't admit it, but you've been backstopping Marsh for over a year now. What the hell are you talking about? Cuddy was confused. Baker swallowed hard, looked up at his superior officer, jealousy controlling every muscle, every nerve in his fixed expression. The lieutenant turned to Corporal Reed. Tell him. Cuddy glanced at the younger, more green officer. It's true, Major, Reed said reluctantly. Marsh isn't herself. Not... I mean, she's always tired. She forgets things. Names. She doesn't take patrols anymore. That's right. Lieutenant Baker found his voice, his balance. He leaned against the wall. The last time Marsh went on patrol, she got lost in the residence. A utility bot had to lead her back to the barracks. Cuddy's eyes narrowed. He looked from one man to the other, then stepped back into the center of the room. He thought for a long moment, back to his most recent conversation with Marsh. She had been so eager for Cuddy to go to the surface. And now, just a short time later, she expressed his appointment that Cuddy wasn't around as often, tending to his duties as second-in-command. Was it true? Was Colonel Marsh, his mentor and surrogate mother, losing her faculties? And if so, how was it possible he had taken charge without consciously noticing she was slipping? No, Cuddy shook his head. It's not possible. It is, insisted the lieutenant. You don't believe it? Look at her report logs. They're gibberish. Cuddy stared into the distance. Then how... How does she report to the Shadow Council? The Council knows, Lieutenant Baker said, as if the fact was obvious. They must. Cuddy took a breath, looked at the floor. He had considered the fact that Dana Marsh was close to the Council as an advisor, perhaps even part of the Council. He wondered. If the central processor that selected members of the Council knew all about those in the Phoenix Project, how could it choose someone who seemed so capable but was in fact losing themselves. Cuddy looked up at the other men. 
I'll look into it. He fought anger, confusion, the urge to react, blame, punish. Consider yourselves on report until further notice, and do nothing without informing me. The lieutenant shrugged. The corporal nodded repeatedly. Dismissed. Cuddy pressed the button, opening the portal. Lieutenant Baker left first, but the corporal lingered, a pained look in his youthful, green eyes. Corporal? Sir? The younger man stumbled a little. It's just... If it's true, if the council and the computer know all of this, then maybe it's time for new leadership. Someone who will take a stand against the dissidents and... Cuddy shot Reed a hard look. That will be all, Corporal. Yes, yes, sir. Reed passed through the archway. He was replaced by three colored panels. Alone, Cuddy fell back on his bunk. He stared into rough, worn palms, wondering what Colonel Marsh was keeping from him. If he knew, what more could he do to help that wouldn't pull him from his work with General Castro and Dr. Bath? He owed her everything, his career, his status in the law division. But was Colonel Marsh more important to him than exploring the surface and saving the survivors of the Phoenix Project? It wasn't difficult for General Castro to convince Donna Chang to power up the hardware and send his consciousness through the green stream. Devenu and Ganaya were gone. Castro studied the engineer's intricate drawings on the whiteboards, the schematics spread across her workbench. He made small talk, suggesting the time was right for his return to the surface. We should test the signal strength with only one simulacrum operating and drawing power, Castro told Chang. He watched her eyes widen. The general pushed from his mind the recent revelation that Miro Ganaya was his daughter, the product of a liaison close to the destruction of the United Nations and New York City. Are you sure? Chang asked. My simulacrum was cast into a hole on that island off Manhattan. Kasher recalled being surrounded by mentally ill mutants, a heavily sedated teenager with an eye in the center of her forehead. I'm eager to get back, to get out of there and join the others. Chang nodded. She helped the disabled general disrobe and climb into the transference coffin. Castro felt the pinpricks of pipettes digging into his skull, then saw narrow shafts of brown light coming toward him, disintegrating, falling away. Whether it was because he was taking this trip solo, or because his mind and body were more experienced, acclimated to the process, Castro felt little disorientation as his consciousness transferred through the green stream. Castro gasped caught his breath quickly, and opened his eyes. His simulacrum lay on its back, not unlike the position in which he lay inside the porcelainization coffin. The room was dimly lit, except for a spotty lamp hovering nearby. He looked up, focused, saw splitting wood rafters. Then came a voice nearby, female and sonorous, but unusual, not quite human. It wakes. Castro shifted, trying to sit up, trying to discern where the sound came from. He wasn't restrained, but he felt soft, unable to move. Where am I? 
Is it human? Or is it something else? Mustering his strength, Castro bent at his midsection. He leaned forward to see his coveralls stripped from his robot body. Thin scraps of his pseudoskin were drawn back at the forearm and wrists, pinned to the table. He felt no pain, but saw the exposed graphene webbing and subcutaneous conduits beneath his simulacrum's lime-green coating. I don't know who you are, Castro peered in front of him, mechanical eyes adjusting to the dim world around him, but you've got to let me go. Do I? Must we? The voice was augmented by the flutter of wings. Castro turned, felt something poking in his neck, then a thin layer of pseudoskin falling to his chest. Now, in the light, the general saw his captor. A woman approximately five and a half feet tall, with an attenuated neck that craned above her feather-covered torso. Orange eyes like beads peered at the general. Her beak-like mouth moved close to his ear. You are not one of Silvio Jones's monsters, and you are unaffected by our potions, our toxins, our cures. You sleep, and then you wake. Who are you? Castro looked at his arms, the peeled back skin. If his was a real body, this would be a despicable but precise form of torture. He thought of pulling against the needles, pinning back the pseudoskin, resting himself from there. I should ask you the same thing, Castro finally said to his swan-like captor. The magistrate and our people on this island sanctuary call me La Signa Belle, but you may call me Camille. Castro watched the creature hover into the light, pristine feathers fluttering about a winged body. My god. Castro felt his oculus winding in his robot body's occipital orbit, the first time in his life as a robot he experienced this sensation. No, not God, not human, but perhaps an evolution to the angelic. She floated above the table, above Castro, her arms folded, then stretched out. Camille gazed down, neck craning. I don't have time for this, Castro struggled. He didn't feel the sting of pain in his arms as he pulled against the needles holding him there. But he did feel a stab of discomfort in his head. How was that possible? Your magistrate is a madman. Castro watched viscous liquid seep from his wrists. He hoped the damage wasn't permanent. We're all madmen here. Castro watched her float nearby, unsure if she intended to attack him to keep him there. You'll hurt yourself. Castro struggled, his augmented strength pulling, prying against the needles and sutures. What is it? Castro watched Camille swoon in the air, her beaked face turning its orange eyes to a crack in stained glass. An attack. Castro pulled against the final restraint and last needle. Fluid spattered. Graphene-laced pseudoskin fell to the floor, followed by the general's robot body. It took Castro a moment to regain his composure. Why, he thought. The robot shouldn't have the same failings and weaknesses as bone, muscle, and flesh. If you're trying to keep me here, Castro said, you've done a poor job. In swift theatrical movements, La Bell glided up to the rafters, 
then swooped down in front of General Castro. If I wanted to keep you here... Her head wound around him, then back to face him. I could. If I wanted you dead, you would be dead. But... Castro prompted her. I have no use for machines. No need for aberrations. Only the organic. Those poisoned by pharmacologists and warmongers. Fallout and pestilence. As Castro put on his coveralls, a door at the end of the wood-walled room flew open. Two of the magistrate sentries stood there. Madam, one called out, take shelter. We must man the ramparts. For your safety, pleaded the other man. Then they were gone. Ramparts, Castro asked. Camille's beak drew back into a kind of smile. Go. She seemed saddened by this turn of events. I cannot protect you from Silvio Jones's marauders. Confused but determined, General Castro moved away from Camille. He got to the center of the room, but stopped when he heard something. The general gazed down into the pit and the floor where suffering mutants sat perched on decaying cadavers, the subjects of the magistrate and La Signa Bell's unholy experiments. What about them? Castro asked, unsure of why he was concerned. After all, saving mutants was not part of his mandate from the Phoenix Shadow Council. They are upon us! Camille's wings expanded. She rose up into the creaking rafters, into the darkness. Out of the corner of his robotic lenses, Castro saw a flash of fire fly past the window, then the ignition and explosions outside. He bent down, leaning over the pit of people on the floor. Here! Castro called into the hole. He stretched out a hand to the malformed, emaciated men and women with glazed eyes. The young girl with the single eye on her forehead reached up. Please. Come on! Castro took her hand. He hoisted her out of the pit into the room. Help me, he insisted. Help me save the others. But the young girl went immediately towards the door. He saw a motion outside and called out. A bottle pierced stained glass. The bottle crashed to the floor, the fuel inside it igniting instantly near the dazed mutant girl. No! Castro shouted as the girl was engulfed. The room filled with flames. Rotting floorboards and debris ignited instantly. Castro reached back into the pit, grasping desperately for outstretched hands clawing for him. He tried to lift bodies before being engulfed in clouds of smoke, wisps of flame that caused his optical sensors to adjust frantically against his control. Disoriented, the general weighed his options. How many more could he save before he was consumed in flame? Would he be set upon by the magistrate's soldiers or their enemies? Damn it! He fled through a wall of fire, bypassing the blocked door. Simulacrum charged stained glass, shattering it. The general rolled into overgrown shrubs. He watched men flee across a patch of thin grass. As fire turned the building at his back to cinders, he saw the magistrate's costume guardsmen run into one building and out its rear exit. They hauled heavy arms, rotating cannons, and boxes of explosives. A man stopped near General Castro. To your stations, he shouted, and hoisted something that looked like a trumpet over his shoulder. He fired a red flare overhead. Castro was watching the flare when a shot rang out, felling the man with the empty launcher. The general ducked down, crawled into a thicket of briar and ivy. Peering through the cover of leaves, he watched mutants in tatters, madmen in makeshift uniforms race to and from small buildings. 
bullets echoed. Rifle fire blasted into the night, coming from somewhere near the docks, the eastern shore where Castro crashed almost eight hours earlier. Castro crawled from the bushes, keeping low to the ground. He hovered over the body of the man who fired the flare that now diminished overhead. The general reached the man quickly, purposefully. He took a sharp, steel-folding razor, a revolver, and a handful of flares from a bag lying nearby. More rifle sounds rang out into the darkness. Glass cracked, wood splintered. The sound of cannons and explosions rocked one side of the island. Castro ran west, away from where the battle roared. The distinct voice of the magistrate filled the darkness. My children, my brothers, the heathens are upon us. We knew this day was coming, and now we must show our resolve for purity's sake. The voice became distant as Castro fled through the woods. Limbs without foliage reached like stiff tendrils, pointing him away from danger. Fight to the last man! Fight to the death! A small canister landed a few feet from the general. A sharp bang rang out as the grenade exploded, releasing a green cloud around him. The gas had no effect on the general's simulacrum. Something leapt from between the trees, racing at him. Castro reacted instinctively, charging the tall, wiry figure with ghastly, hard tumors covering his body. Khaki fatigues covered the shirtless creature's legs. Its face was concealed by a primitive gas mask. Castro watched it raise a machete between them, the blade glinting in the moonlight. The general deftly avoided the downstroke, then launched at his attacker. His fist struck the man's throat with enough force to knock him to the ground. Castro hovered over the creature. What the hell are you? He spoke aloud and lifted the rubber mask from the man's face. A fat, serpentine tongue lolled between the man's teeth. Good lord. Castro gazed at mangled fangs, the tumor-ridden bodies spotted by pulsating leeches. Curse you and your pathetic magistrate, the creature hissed. Silvio is taking back this island, you hear me? Your magistrate is finished. Castro kicked a man hard in the temple, knocking him unconscious. Not my magistrate, Castro spoke coolly and retrieved the machete. He turned from the battle, stealing away through the woods. After what seemed like an eternity, the general came to the shoreline near Buttermilk Channel. He faced Brooklyn, its waterfront and piers. Pausing, he wondered how the hell he would explain all of this to the others. It was too fantastic to make up, and yet, too visceral to ignore. While Castro scavenged the shoreline for a small boat, he made up his mind. His simulacrum body would continue to Brooklyn. There, he would cross over the bridge, find a way to rendezvous with Cuddy and Bath in Manhattan. But once they were all back together in the Phoenix Project, he was going to have a long talk with Danielle Devenu about taking his experiences and observations directly to the Shadow Council. It was, after all, imperative that those leading the subterranean survivors make preparations for what they should experience upon returning to the surface. Castro drifted quietly in his boat, in the stillness, he thought he saw La Signa Belle, Camille, rising from the smoke, a winged silhouette escaping the battle raging below. Maybe, he thought, but what did it matter? What difference did it make? Behind him, 
Not island burned. In the distance, Brooklyn beckoned. Despite the smog and cloud coverage overhead, Castro saw stars, the constellation Draco. His thoughts turned to his most recent revelation, that Chief Surgeon Miro Ganaya, the woman responsible for his resurrection, was his daughter. Castro smiled. Maybe he could never speak of this with Ganaya, but the thought gave the hardened general hope. Something worth fighting for in a destructive world gone totally mad. Aftermath, a fire pit creative group production based on a story created by Rhett Davis with characters created by Warren Davis, Willem DeGrief, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis with Willem DeGrief and Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner with Warren Davis. Music composed by Warren Davis. And video production by Willem DeGrief. Links for the sound effects used in Aftermath can be found in each episode's description. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Firepit Creative Group.